This is Media Business Matters, the podcast that explores why recent news in the media business matters to people who love media. Hi, and thank you all for listening. My name is Alex. I'm a journalist with the Michigan Daily. And I'm Amanda Lotz, a professor at the University of Michigan. Welcome to our second podcast. There's been a lot of news about the changing ways people consume content across all media industries, and we're going to talk about how it's affecting two of them today. The first industry we're going to tackle is the television industry and how legacy companies within the industry are trying to respond to digital disruption from services like Netflix and Amazon. They're doing this using what Amanda likes to call portals. Amanda, can you tell us what these portals are? Sure. I've been trying to make sense of the different ways of viewing that have emerged. We've had a tendency, I think, to categorize everything that's broadband distributed as the same thing, but I'm seeing some real differentiation among the services. So we're looking at services like CBS All Access, uh, which is CBS's response. They charge $5.99 a month, and you get access to present and back and back library CBS content. Right. So CBS All Access, I'd put in the same category as HBO Now, and most in the news recently, NBC's CISO, which just launched uh, since the beginning of the year. And I'm calling these studio portals because I think what they primarily are are distribution mechanisms that have been designed by existing legacy, by legacy I mean television entities that were around before broadband distribution. So these are opportunities by legacy entities to try to distribute their own content. Exactly, exactly. It's them trying to respond to not having the same ad revenue they used to. So, I mean, how does this change work? I mean, how are these portals different and how do they how do they make money? Okay, so let's let's talk about what isn't a studio portal right now. And right now what isn't a studio portal is Netflix. Netflix emerged initially as an aggregator. It was licensing content from a lot of different places. So Netflix didn't have the advantage of vertical integration, to use a a big concept, but that's the idea of owning both the production and the distribution, and, and that tends to have some economic advantages, and that's what the studio portals have. So Netflix started out licensing content and then gradually moved into creating their own. And these distinctions, I think, they're, they're, they're messy at this point, right? Because we're at the start of a, of a new era. Uh, but it, I think it's helpful to begin to talk about some of these distinctions. So one is, is it a, a service, a portal that's trying to bring together a lot of different content uh, around a different theme? So CISO is all comedy. Another one is Noggin, which is coming from Viacom and Nickelodeon, and it's all preschool content. Uh, the World Wrestling Network has their own as well. Um, and then you have services like Netflix and HBO Go, or HBO Now, rather, um, that offer a wide range of content and therefore draw different kinds of consumers. Exactly. I mean, Netflix really has made a name for themselves in bringing in little pieces of everything. And that's also what HBO does on their linear network, too. And HBO Now is essentially all the content that's on HBO Go, just you you don't have to subscribe to HBO on the cable in order to have it. And that's really the distinction with these portals. It's, It's all over broadband. Right. But then there are other distinctions and that aren't at all related to this technological difference of distributing over broadband. And those are really important to talk about as well. And the big one here is a different funding model. So whereas American television has been overwhelmingly ad supported, even cable where you pay a subscription, over half of that business model is built on ad funding. And the the ad funding tends to rule the way those businesses operate. 
the services that are emerging and are, are, that are pretty solid at this point are all choosing to go with a subscription business model. Exactly. And, I, and with subscription, I always look to HBO and Showtime as kind of the model for how these businesses are making decisions. Just because um, Netflix, for example, has a bit more leeway in what they keep and what they cancel. Like HBO was able to house shows like Enlightened and Treme for multiple seasons, where a, an ad-based network really wouldn't have with those ratings. Right. And so part of that, com- part of it is understanding how a subscription business is different. Even though you do hear ratings, and we talked about ratings for Netflix last week, but although you do hear ratings for HBO, like Netflix, they don't so much matter. I mean, it's helpful that they put them out and they're interesting, but really the metric that matters for HBO or any subscription service to know whether or not it is succeeding is whether or not it's able to maintain its subscribers. So in industry jargon, this often gets called churn or what is the rate of people that cancel the service or it's related to measurement of how many new subscribers they have in a given period. Exactly, exactly. So even if you're subscribing for one show, And let's say you subscribe to CBS All Access because you want to see the Star Trek show that's going to come out in 2017. CBS doesn't care as long as you're paying them that monthly fee. They don't care what you watch. They don't care if you watch as long as your money goes in their pockets. Right. And so as a result of not being concerned that about how many people are watching in each and every time slot, again, to go back to sort of an older television concept, but one that's really important to to ad support and perhaps explains why these new broadband distributed services aren't relying on ad support. The, the cons- when you're trying not to keep someone happy in every single time period of every single day, you can dip program different content. So one thing that we can look back to HBO, even before broadband distribution, and see in their strategy was really targeting different viewing populations with content that they couldn't get anywhere else. And I think one of the best moments that you could see this was in the era of Sex in the City. And so HBO has always had a very strong pull in its subscribership for its sports content. Now it's boxing and it's, you know, it's shows that talk about sports. There's and, hard knocks. Right. And that's not the Sex in the City audience at all. But by, by offering you know, two different demographics, let's say, more targeted content than they could get anywhere else, you lead two different demographics to keep subscribing uh, because there's no comparison and there's no way to get that content in any other way. Exactly. Exactly. Like the girls audience is probably not the same audience who's watching Game of Thrones, but Girls is a very niche and very targeted show that you can only get on HBO, and it's Lena Dunham's voice who really isn't available anywhere else on TV right now. So if you like Girls, you're going to subscribe to HBO for Girls. Right. And so we're starting to see, I think another reason that we're starting to see this this trend toward subscription funding is the uncertainty about the ad-supported model for the other kinds of portals. And there are ad-supported portals out there. Like Hulu, for example. Right. Well, so that's that perhaps is the piece I'm most curious about. Um, Hulu had just an advertising-supported model initially, and then it went to the sort of odd hybrid, you have to pay a subscription, but there's still some commercials. And then the summer announced that you could pay a little bit more per month, I think it's $12, and then not have any ads. And I've been waiting to see some sort of data about what's gone on with its, its subscriber base, whether or not core subscribers did indeed move to that ad-free tier. Uh, and so... 
So the ad model has been out there. Uh, we also see it going way back. Crackle, which is a Sony service, a Sony studio portal, has been around for a long time, relying just on ad support. But I think as all of the ad-supported portals, none of them have gained the kind of, of traction as the subscriber-supported services. Right. What steps do you think these legacy companies are actually going to take to win back these viewers and actually bring them to these portals? Well, that's where I think this, this last year was really interesting with the launch of, of so many services. So CBS All Access and HBO Now were both announced within a few days of each other uh, in November of 2014 and, and came into the market in 2015. And, and to my mind, this was more aggressive movement than I was expecting from the legacy services, sort of given the way in which they, they seem to hesitate about this new market. But I think, retrospectively, this, this all makes sense. And really what the legacy industry has done has, has been to step back and, and wait and see and let the, these new companies like Hulu or Amazon and, and Netflix figure out this space. Um, they've, these services have proven that there are viewers who are very interested in watching in this way. And, and they've just sort of quietly been getting ready at a technological level to bring these services to market. So I think... What is important that we're seeing now is that it isn't that CBS is trying to pull us back to watching linear television at a certain time, but that we're starting to see how these services are, are recognizing that they have to move with the audience. Yes. Now to move on to our second subject. The Sundance Film Festival happened recently, and these portals, well, we call them portals, are not only disrupting TV, but they're also disrupting how film distribution works as well. Now, what are, what are people like Amazon and Netflix doing at the Sundance Film Festival, and what does it mean for the film model? Right, so it's not just television viewership that's changing, but it's also distribution in the film industry. And for a long time, there was no way to distribute films other than these established patterns of going out and doing a theatrical release first, and then you cycle through these windows over time, um, and, and that would be how films would make money. As digital distribution has become more common and there's different ways to now view, audiences, film audiences also have, have expressed different attitudes about how they view films. Uh, and one of the big challenges has been that theater going has been declining, especially among younger audiences. And so what Amazon, Netflix, and, and some of these others suggest is, is the opportunity to, for independent films and smaller films to be distributed, um, not going to box offices at all or being available in a limited theatrical setting at the same time as they emerge on the streaming service. The, I guess the big disruption here is these film services are... These streaming services are taking over that theatrical window. And to kind of make sense of that, the film industry has gotten very angry at these people, or at these people, at Netflix and Amazon for taking over this window. Like Beasts of No Nation, which came out this year, most major chains refused to show it, and Netflix could only find a handful of private theaters to release it in New York and L.A. to get that Oscar qualification. Right. So one of the, the complicated things here is the distinction between 
theaters and studios. And and even the casual moviegoer might sort of think of these as all the same thing, but they're really different economic entities. And so theater owners, who are separate from the people who own the content, they're the people who own the places that you go to see movies, uh, they're really concerned to, that they'll be able to continue to get the kind of content that will drive people into the theaters. Now, a, a film like, like Star Wars has been great for theater owners, right? We've had record attendance uh, in the last few months. And the theater owners, they, they get a cut often of the box office. It's, it often is uh, less than 50%. It's about it, a 40% cut on a movie like Star Wars. Right, and it varies week to week. Uh, and it's different for a big blockbuster film as opposed to some of these smaller independents. Which are more like 50-50. Right, and that's why it costs so much to buy popcorn at the theater because that really is, the concessions really are an important part of the theater owner's uh, revenue stream. And so the theater owners are concerned about films not coming to them, but at the same time, there's this question about whether the films that Amazon or Netflix, the ones that they're buying, whether or not those would have driven big audiences into the theater in the first place. Yeah, I mean, you look at these movies, they're smaller independent films. Those are not the movies that go into wide release. or They're not blockbusters like a Star Wars or a, or a Jurassic World. They tend to be a lot smaller and a lot different. And what does this lead studios to do if the movie, if the independent movies aren't quite bringing in, or these mid-range or small-budget movies aren't quite bringing in the box office that a theater owner might or studio might want? Right. So there you're, you're pointing to the way in which even the nature of, of Hollywood content is, is trying to figure out how to respond to the new economics of filmmaking and film distribution. And so for a long time, it was all about domestic box office. Um, and then the DVD market emerged, and that became a really important revenue stream. And then that revenue stream slowly has, has faded away. And in the last few years, international box office has become really important because that is a growth area. More people are going to see movies around the world than are going to see them in the United States, or that's where the, the increase in the audience growth is. And as a result, Hollywood is having to rethink the nature of the content that it makes in order to, to make content that's going to be attractive in those international markets. So I think what it comes back to is I don't know that I think this, in many ways, makes a lot of sense. These, these aren't films that were going to be giant blockbusters. Um, and it might be that these filmmakers are receiving a really strong distribution deal, um, even without going the conventional route. Right, and the, the rumors that have been flying out of Sundance are that these smaller indie arms of studios think your Fox Searchlight or independent, separate independent entities like the Weinstein Company aren't finding the films that were playing at the Sundance Film Festival to be that commercial. There was a big worry that nobody would go see a movie about Daniel Radcliffe as a farting corpse. Perhaps. But there, this isn't necessarily e exclusively the trend, though. I, I look at a deal like Birth, The Birth of a Nation which got $17.5 million from Fox Searchlight to distribute, which is a record for the Sundance Film Festival. And it, it's a disruption, but it's not a complete change. Right. So what was significant is there was, I believe, um, the offer was $20 million from Netflix, and yes. it got turned down. Right. 
And so, you know, so why would that happen, right? If this is a commercial business, why would you go with less? And, and it just sort of speaks to the moment that we're in, which is a time of transition. And so for a certain film, for certain films and certain filmmakers, going with established norms might make more sense, whereas others might recognize that their film doesn't fit well with sort of conventional patterns and genres that you can promote well and drive theater viewership, and that a better option is to go with the type of release that you can get from one of these portals. Although I think a part of why Birth of a Nation went to uh, Fox Searchlight instead of Netflix is Netflix and Amazon don't really have the awards uh, traction that maybe a Fox Searchlight does. They Like, Beast of No Nation did not get any Oscar nominations this year. A part of why the filmmakers of The Birth of a Nation went with Fox Searchlight is Fox Searchlight probably went in and said, we can get you these Oscar nominations that Netflix really can't right now. Well, yeah, I think there's a lot of deal making and, 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 you know, Netflix can't get the award until Netflix gets the award, right? So it's just a matter of time before the right project comes along and, and the awards are handed out. Um, and certainly there's also an awful lot of money going into pre-award seasons, promotional blitzes. And so the question there, too, is whether or not is it just really a matter of spending? Um, and, and certainly it looks like Netflix has pretty deep pockets in, in that regard. So, you know, if, if that was the prime motivation for the filmmaker, I, mean, I could see where that why that decision would be made. But I think at this point, we're at such a moment of change that I don't think any of any assumptions can be uh, held for the long term. That's true. That's true. So why are Netflix and Amazon buying at Sundance versus maybe going out and making their own films? Well, I think this is part of the strategy of both entities. In many cases, you know, development's tough, and, and, and Netflix certainly is developing its own films, and so this is an opportunity to, to get more content. And to some degree, these subscriber services, and to, to tie this back to the earlier conversation, now, we're talking a lot this week about Netflix and Amazon and, and lots of press outlets, and, and that's really important to them. I, I was reading a, a, a book by a, an executive who had worked at HBO in, in promotions, and he said that at one point they had a, a, an algorithm or a calculus for the value of simply being mentioned in the newspaper. And so this is all great promotion for them, and it's driving people to, to think about subscribing to the services for those who don't already. And for those who do, it's, it's, it's reinforcing their sense that they do get some value out of it. And so I think the idea, I'd say, I will say as, as a Netflix viewer, you know, I, I feel like my subscription has more value to know that I will be getting these good films and, and frankly not having to go to the theater to see them because it's just as comfortable to watch it in, in my basement. Right. I mean, I'm personally a big believer of the theatrical experience, which is why, I don't know, maybe this is just the film buff in me, but going to see a movie like Anomalisa on a big screen is, is different from, you know, maybe watching it on your couch. But that, that just might be my own personal taste. That and the fact you don't have to get a babysitter. That, that is also true. So I think the other question that's on the minds of the studios and is whether or not these films, if they were released uh, through a conventional theatrical release, whether or not they would be profitable. Right. Like, you look at a movie like Me and Earl and the Dying Girl. It was bought in a massive deal at Sundance. I believe the number was about $7 million. But when it was actually released, it only made about $6 million and didn't gain the kind of traction that they were hoping for. But then you look at a movie like Brooklyn, which was bought for a little bit more than that, uh, again, by, by Fox Searchlight, it made, it's made $28 million as of recording. 
And it, there's also some more money to be made because of Oscar nominations. Like, Sundance movies have a wide spectrum of possibilities when it comes to how much money they'll actually make when it comes out. And it's really kind of unknown when you're looking at this film festival. You might look at a movie and think, oh, this is going to make a lot of money, and then it doesn't. Or you might have a, a sleeper hit on your hands. Then you look at a movie like Whiplash, which came in and made about $13 million in America, and about and 48 million worldwide, that's a lot of money for a movie that really wasn't expecting to gain, expected to gain a lot of traction. Absolutely. So in one hand, on one hand, you have a certain level of, of certainty. Um, at least the the Netflix and the the Amazon folks, they 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 have a sense already of what built-in subscribership they have that might be interested in their their in movies with certain topics, and, and I think that might also make them feel like they know a little bit more, but certainly uh, in this business, nobody knows uh, whether it's these small independent films or even the big blockbusters. Right. Now we're going to move on to our last segment where Amanda and I are going to talk about what we're watching this week. So Amanda, what are you watching this week? Oh, I started Narcos on Netflix this week. Ooh, that's exciting. So illustrating, uh, about a year ago, I, I moved away largely from watching anything on at a certain time, and I've been moving through and watching series, um, mostly a season at a time. In a couple cases, there were shows that I hadn't seen any seasons, and so I watched multiple seasons. And I have to say, you know, when we're talking about this topic of the changing ways that we watch, it's, it's a form of viewing that I very much enjoy. And I, I'm hearing a lot about some other new shows, and I'm piling up episodes on my DVR or I'm waiting for the, the full season of, of Shameless to be available on Showtime before I start working through that. But uh, I find the, the ability to just work my way through one series at a time to, to really be a preferable way to watch the kind of shows that I like because I do tend to prefer the dramas and the more serialized ones. How about you, Alex? What are you watching this week? Well, I'm actually going to talk about the one time I actually do make an effort to watch linear TV, and that's with the CW Monday Nights, with Jane the Virgin and Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. I think these are both shows which are very different from anything else that's on the air, and they're both so unique, and they each have their own voice. I look at Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. It's a musical about a person who moves to the opposite side of the country in order to follow a boy. That might sound like a ridiculous premise, but the show has this sense of what it is and this sense of the story it wants to tell. Um, involved, it's written mostly by Rachel Bloom, who it was known previously for YouTube. And it's, you know, I watched the mid-season premiere and they finally got to the point where they know what the show is and they know what they want to be. Then I look at Jane the Virgin and that show is just so sweet. It just has such a good heart. And I could tell how much I love this show because they did a wheel spinning episode in their mid-season premiere. They didn't really advance the plot that much, but I love spending this time with the character so much that I didn't care. I just enjoyed watching these people, watching the Villanueva family interact, watching Gina Rodriguez play just a good person. And really, these shows are low rated. I really hope more people watch them. Please watch these shows. Or wait until they come on Netflix. Oh, yeah. There's always Netflix. <laughs> well, thanks for listening this week. For more about 
Alex and Amanda, your hosts. Visit amandalots.com and take a look at the Media Business Matters link where you can find more episodes like this. You can also follow me on Twitter at DrTVLots, and you can follow Alex at... You can follow me at at Alex Intner. That's Alex, I-N-T-N-E-R. Now, thank you all for listening, and we'll see you soon.